This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Dear Lord, thank you for another year of life. Thank you for another year that, that we have to be able to live for you. And at the same time, Lord, we're sorry that another year has passed. We want you to come. We long for you to come, and we pray that, that your delay will not be lengthened because of our inactivity. We ask that you'll help us to be alert to your leading. Open our eyes, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can do the work you need us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this morning we're calling Open Your Eyes. We're going to be talking some about, well, why is it that we look around the world and in some places it seems like the latter rain is falling? We see the church growing rapidly, lots and lots of baptisms. You can go, you can go to certain countries and hold an evangelistic meeting and have hundreds of baptisms at the end of two or three weeks. And why is it we see that in some places? but not in others. Is, will there ever be a day when there will be a strong and vibrant Seventh-day Adventist church in the Middle East and North Africa, for instance? We're, we're going to look today at every time that the Bible talks about people's eyes being open. And I think we'll see as we go through it, there are lots of lessons we could look at, but I think we'll see that Often the problem is with us, not with God and what's happening in the world around us. Often our eyes just aren't open to see what really is happening around us. We're going to look at what some of the possibilities are. But to start with, I wanted to share with you a little bit from probably your favorite class in high school. Well, maybe not. It was my favorite class in high school. That was geometry. Anybody, geometry, your favorite class? I don't know, I, I, I loved math, and I'm a biology major, and I've never used biology, and I do very little with math, and uh, instead I've been pastoring and, and working in the Middle East and other things. God leads in amazing ways sometimes. But I wanted to share with you an example from, from geometry, from mathematics. You may remember, you might wish you didn't, but you might remember that a point is defined as having how many dimensions? I, I cheated and gave you the answer. No dimensions, right? No length, no height, no width. A point is mathematically something without dimensions. If you extend that point forever in both directions, you're supposed to have a line, right? And how many dimensions does a line have? One, okay? One dimension, theoretically. No width, just length. If you drag that one-dimensional line up forever, you end up with what we call a plane. And you can imagine that plane as a, a giant piece of paper with length and width, but, but no depth. If, if you have a simple two-dimensional structure that you draw on that two-dimensional piece of paper, it would have four edges and one foundation, right? It, it's a little building built on that piece of paper. It would have four edges and one foundation. I want you to remember that. Now it starts to get a little more complicated for most who are not mathematicians. 
we, uh, if you pull that two-dimensional building up into three dimensions, okay, we can picture that even though we were up late last night maybe, if you pull it up into three dimensions, that you have a cube. That cube would have four foundations, and how many edges? Anybody count them? How many edges it would have? It would have 12, if you count the bottom two, it would have 12 edges and four foundations. Now, we can't picture the fourth dimension. In our minds, we're three-dimensional beings. We can't picture it. But mathematically, if you expand this three-dimensional cube into the fourth dimension, it would have 12 foundations. Do we know anything in the Bible that has 12 foundations? The New Jerusalem, right? Now, I don't know if that means that it's a four-dimensional structure or if John was just having trouble describing it or, or what, but there are many mathematicians that believe that the New Jerusalem is a four-dimensional, at least, structure. In fact, there are a number of articles and books that have been written through the years by mathematicians who, who focus on the four-dimensional language in the Bible. And there are a lot of places where they see evidence of a fourth dimension in the Bible. But for today, I want to back up to something easier for us. Fourth dimension is beyond us and, and it's too hard to think much about. I want you to imagine with me a two-dimensional world. Okay, like a photograph, but a two-dimensional world. In a two-dimensional world, people couldn't pass around each other, they could only climb over each other because remember in two dimensions there's no depth. So, so they can't come out here to go around, they, they can only go over each other. If I stuck my finger through their universe, what would they see? They would only see the outline of my finger where I poked it through their universe and they would wonder where it came from and what it was. All they would see is the outline of it. If they built a room, let's, let's say that they went in and built a room and, and, and that then they went inside and locked the door. Okay, this is a two-dimensional room that they're building. They went inside and locked the door. Um, nobody could get inside that room without unlocking the door or breaking down the wall, right? At least no two-dimensional person could. They, but if, if I, as a three-dimensional person, walked over to their little room that they've built, and I stepped inside with them, all they would see is my outline, and they would wonder how I got in there. Can I pass through walls? I mean, what, what miraculous thing did I do to be able to step inside their locked room? Okay, maybe you're beginning to remember some stories in the Bible after Jesus' resurrection when they wondered how Jesus suddenly appeared in their room. They would be amazed. They would think that I had some sort of powers and could pass through walls. In a two-dimensional world, people couldn't see what was happening on the other side of the world. Their little eyes couldn't see down here. They, they could only walk around and look, but they couldn't see across the world. None of them could see anything outside their two-dimensional world. I could come over and stand right beside them, but because they're two-dimensional beings, their eyes don't see into the third dimension and they wouldn't know that I'm standing right next to them. In fact, there could be thousands of two-dimensional universes stacked side by side and they would never know it. 
All they can see is within their own two-dimensional universe. It would be very hard for them to understand the text that says he's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. They can't imagine that. How could every, every eye on our world see him coming at the same time? But it's really quite easy to accomplish. All God would have to do is open their eyes and let them see into the third dimension. And if suddenly their eyes were open, they could all see all of the other universes and they could see me standing here if their eyes were in the third dimension. All of them at once, no matter where they were on the world, even if they had dug into a cave and were hiding, even if they were in prison, they would be able to see me as a three-dimensional being or see Jesus as he comes all their eyes. And math mathematicians tell us that the same thing would happen if a multi-dimensional God, four, five, six, whatever, were to open our eyes so that we could see out of the third dimension, all of us on earth, no matter what room we're in, no matter what prison, no matter what cave we're in, no matter where we are in the world, all of us could see him at the same time, no matter where we were. Today I want to think about having our eyes open. The Bible talks about it quite a few times, not always applying to the fourth dimension, but it always means seeing something that we didn't see before, or seeing something in a way that we didn't see it before. And sometimes that's not a good thing. The first case of somebody's eyes being opened is in Genesis 3. And verse 1. I, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, the, servant was the, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. You know, it seems like we humans have always wanted to know something more than what we know, right? But sometimes there's a blessing in innocence, isn't there? You know, we, we love gossip because we learn things we didn't know about people and things that are going on. Uh, of course, we don't call it gossip, but we all do it. We all hear it. We all say, did you know? Did you see? Have you heard? And suddenly our eyes are open to things we didn't know before. But are we better off? Do we get along better with the people around us because we now know something we didn't know before? Is there more unity in the church because we now know things about people that we didn't know before? Are we better able to do the work of God because we know things that we didn't know before? No. It'd be better off if we didn't know all of that about them, wouldn't it? Adam and Eve weren't content with just 
walking and talking with angels and Jesus. That wasn't enough. They wanted to know something more. They wanted their eyes to be opened like the snakes said they could have. And oh, what misery has been the result. It's not always a good thing to have our eyes open to things that we didn't know before. The next time we see someone having their eyes opened is in Genesis 21, verses 8 to 19. Do we have everything working okay? Okay, okay. Genesis 21, 8 to 19. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her, servant, her Egyptian servant Hagar making fun of her son, Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, Get rid of the slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. But God told Abraham, don't be upset over the boy and your servant. Do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, and strapped them on Hagar's shoulders. Then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush, and then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said, as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven, Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. Okay, sometimes we might be like Hagar, caught in a really unfortunate situation. Maybe it seems like it's unfair. I mean, what did Hagar do to deserve this? It was Sarah's idea. It was Abraham's problem. Why should she be caught up in this? Sometimes we think we're in a situation that's not our fault. Maybe we think there's no solution, there's no way out. I mean, if you're out in the desert, hey, come, come walk with us sometimes in parts of our area. If you don't have water with you, you could be in trouble. She's out there, there's no water, she and the boy are going to die. We think there's no way, but sometimes God can open our eyes to solutions we never thought were possible before. You know, it's interesting that here, God saved Ishmael, the ancestor of the Arabs, God saved Ishmael by providing a well full of water, and a few years later, God saved Isaac by miraculously providing a ram. Both of those are symbols of Jesus, aren't they? Jesus, the living water, the ram, the, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I don't have time to dig into that today. But the next story, there are several things that get opened. Let's read Numbers 22, verses 21 to 31. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. And Balaam, as, Balaam and his, as Balaam and his two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. 
the donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crush Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time that when the donkey saw the angel, it lay down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord, okay, the Lord's not opening eyes here. It says, the Lord, uh, then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. He opened the donkey's mouth. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times, it asked Balaam. Why, you made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. It's interesting, if he had a sword, he would kill him, but in just a minute we're going to see somebody else that has a sword, right? If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I'm the same donkey you've ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? Uh, no, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. But you notice, Balaam still went, didn't he? Okay, his eyes were opened, he sees the angel, he's heard the donkey talking to him. In fact, he's held a conversation with the donkey. Balaam still goes. It's just that the words he wants to say so that he'll get the money that he longs for won't come out. In fact, on his third try, Balaam says this in Numbers 24, And Balaam raised his eyes and saw Israel encamped according to their tribes, and the Spirit of, the, of God came upon him. Then he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of a man whose eyes are opened. You know, God had opened his eyes, and Balaam recognized that. I wonder, had God also opened the eyes of the donkey, or do donkeys always see things that humans don't see? I, I don't know. It doesn't say that he opened the eyes of the donkey. It does say he opened the mouth of the donkey. Opening eyes can sometimes change a person's immediate actions, but it doesn't seem to change a person's heart. Do you notice that? Opening the eyes of Balaam changed his immediate actions a little bit at least, but it didn't change his heart. Often I've thought, Oh, I'd like to have my eyes open so I could see my guardian angel. I would love to see my guardian angel, but would I really? I mean, what if I saw him standing there saying, uh -uh, don't go there. No, 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 don't wear that. No, here, I want you to say this. What if, what if my guardian angel was making motions and talking to me and I could see him and he was telling me to do or not do things that I wanted to do or didn't want to do? Would I listen to him because I could see him? any more than I listen when I can't see him? Balaam could see the angel, and it still didn't change what he did. Over in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 to 17, we find the next story of eyes being open. You know all these stories, but sometimes it's good just to read them and think about them again. When the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, don't go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. 
So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset over this. He called his officers together and demanded, which of you is the traitor? Uh, who, is, who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord the king, one of the officers replied. Elisha the prophet in Israel tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Okay, a king might not like that too much. Go find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. The report came back, Elisha's at Dothan. So one night, the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God got up early the next morning and went outside, there were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what do we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O oh Lord, open his eyes and let him see. And the Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elijah, Elisha was filled with horses and chariots. You know, sometimes wherever you're called to work, whether it's in, in the Middle East and North Africa, whether it's in some city in the United States, wherever it happens to be, there could be times when you're terrified. Maybe it's a security or a health issue and you, don't, you just don't know how you're going to deal with this. Maybe, maybe you've just landed in one of our countries and we've put you in a university as a Waldensian student and or a tent maker somewhere, and, and suddenly everybody around you is and you can't understand a word of what they're saying, and you feel afraid and claustrophobic, and you don't know what's going on. They're looking at you, and you're not sure if they're talking good or bad about you. And You'll be in those kinds of situations, but if God would open our eyes, what would we see? There are more with us than there are with them, right? We could see that in every situation. I want to read a, a wonderful promise to you. It's from volume 8 of the Testimonies. Go forth preaching the gospel to all nations, the Savior says to us. In other words, don't skip anybody. That they may become children of God. I am, I am with you in this work, teaching, guiding, comforting, strengthening you, giving you success in your work of self-denial and sacrifice. You will meet with the opposition of satanic agencies. But put your trust in me. I will never fail you. Think you not that Christ values those who live wholly for him? Think you not that he visits those who, like the beloved John, are for his sake in hard and trying places? He finds his faithful ones and holds communion with them, encouraging and strengthening them. And angels of God that excel in strength are sent forth by God to minister to his human workers who are speaking the truth to those who know it not. They are there. All around us are those angels and chariots of fire. Whether or not our eyes are open so that we can see them. Our next Bible story is from John chapter 4. It's the story of the woman at the well. We aren't going to read the whole thing because of time, but let's pick it up from verse 27, and this time I'm going to read from the New International Version. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or, what are you doing with her? Why are you talking with her? 
Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought food to him? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see that the harvest around us is ripe. We talk about how hard the work is in North America or how hard the work is in the Middle East and North Africa, about how hard it is in our neighborhood. Nobody wants to listen or at our workplace. But I think Jesus would sit there and say the same thing to us. Open your eyes and see the harvest is ripe. There are millions of people around us longing to know what's going on and how the world will end. They're frustrated at what they see people doing in the name of religion. They long to have the assurance that God loves and accepts them. They want to make sense of what's going on in the world around us. Sometimes, though, all we see are the frantic actions on the surface, and we think they couldn't possibly be a candidate for God's kingdom. They have no interest. But I want to remind you that one of our favorite Bible characters is Saul of Tarsus, right? Paul. Would he have impressed any of us as a potential candidate for the gospel? I don't think so. In fact, he was acting a lot like ISIS. He was the jihadi John of Bible times. How many of us have prayed for jihadi John? It's too late now. But how many of us were praying for jihadi John when he was slicing off people's heads? That's what Paul was, wasn't it? He was going around imprisoning and beating and killing everybody that he could find that was a follower of Jesus. Now, Jihadi John and ISIS were not just killing followers of Jesus. They've killed far more Muslims than they have Christians. There's some emails going around talking about how ISIS is targeting Christians. And there have been Christians that were killed. But ISIS is targeting anybody that disagrees with them not just Christians, and they've killed far more Muslims than Christians. While, while Paul was doing that, there was a battle raging in his heart that none of us would have seen on the surface. Have you ever wondered why God allows his faithful ones to be persecuted by somebody like Saul? If, there are really, if we are really surrounded by angels, then why do bad things happen to us? Why does God allow those things to happen if, if we really have those chariots of fire and angels all around us? In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 129, Ellen White says something that helps me understand this a little. She says, God permits trials to assail his people that, by their constancy and obedience, they themselves may be spiritually enriched and that their example may be a source of strength to others. Two reasons why she says God allows trials and suffering to come to us so that we can be enriched and so that we can be a source of strength to others. People need to see how we react when things are going wrong. It's through watching us deal with trouble that their lives are often changed. If, if everything's going good for us, they would be glad to be a Christian to get the benefits, right? 
what they need to see sometimes is how do we react when things are going wrong. Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, they have no problem with knowing how to deal with life when everything is going right. Their problem is, what do they do when things are going wrong? They don't have a savior to turn to. Does it make any difference when we have a savior? Do we react differently to persecution, to death, to suffering, to poverty when we know Jesus than when we don't? That's what will change people's lives. The woman at the well wasn't one that we would have chosen to be the first, the first missionary to that Samaritan village, is it? We wouldn't have chosen her, but Jesus saw something, and she was the one who opened the hearts of an entire village. How many of you wish that God would open your eyes so that you could see what's going on around us? Anybody wish that ever? I, I think most of us have it sometime or another. How do we get that kind of vision? Uh, how do we get our eyes opened? I want to share with you a story that illustrates the only way I know of to have our eyes open. Lilius Trotter was a missionary to Algeria many, many years ago. She gave up a career as an artist. Uh, some fascinating books have been written about her. She, she went and served her entire life in Algeria. She's buried there. She died and is buried there. One day in Algeria, something happened that made a powerful impression on Lilius Trotter. Just outside her house, for months, there had been two bakers. They, I mean, they didn't have a big fancy bakery. They had a little oven there on the sidewalk, and they baked, they baked fresh bread, and people would come and get it. But they kneaded their dough every morning with an interesting contraption. It was sort of like a teeter-totter. It was, it was something that they both sat on each end and they went back and forth and back and forth and somehow it was a mechanism that needed their dough so that they could start doing their baking for the day. It, it sent vibrations throughout the whole house for that couple of hours while they were kneading their dough constant, just thump, 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 thump. But nobody really minded because they loved the bread that the bakers baked right there outside their door. And and one, until one day, well, nobody ever saw that there was a problem. They, you know, so there was a little bit of shaking and noise, but that was it until one day, suddenly, unexpectedly, with no advance warning, one of the pillars that held up the roof of her porch, right at the front of the house, right beside where they were working, one of the pillars collapsed and brought down part of the roof and part of the, part of the uh, overhanging porch there, just, just collapsed unexpectedly. Lilius Trotter wrote later, using that as an example, she said, prayer is our constant vibration which will bring down the pillars of Satan's kingdom. You know, isn't that beautiful? Prayer sends shock waves all throughout everything that holds up Satan's kingdom. We may not seem to see the results, Day after day, hour after hour, year after year, we're praying, we're thumping, we're, we're doing that constant vibration. We don't see it. And suddenly, unexpectedly, it comes down. Stephen won't know till heaven that his prayer transformed the life of Saul. You know, Saul stood there holding the coats. Stephen sees him praising what these men are doing as they throw stones at him. 
But Stephen's eyes were opened to see into heaven, and his prayer, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing, struck a chord in Saul's heart. And only in heaven will Stephen see what a difference that made. Day after day, we keep praying, and then suddenly, unexpectedly, a portion of Satan's kingdom comes crashing down. I hope that you'll be joining us in praying that God will bring down the walls of Islam, like he did the Berlin Wall many years ago. That's one of the reasons that we have set up the first Friday of every month as a men a day of prayer and fasting. That's today, right? I, I, I want to encourage each of you to join us throughout this coming year, the first Friday of every month. What happens on Friday in the Muslim world? Everybody goes to prayers, right? We thought we would do this on Friday so that we could be joining them at a time when maybe they've left their business even just for a few minutes and, and even though they may just be going through a routine, they're focusing some attention on God and we want to pray that God will speak to their hearts somehow. We also did it because back in, in the early church days, the Catholic Church was trying to get the day of worship changed from Sabbath to Sunday. Do you remember one of the things they did in order to accomplish that? They made Sunday a feast day and Sabbath a fast day. And the children, as they grew up, grew to love Sunday and have bad thoughts about Sabbath. And so we said, you know, let's do the first Friday of every month. Now, I also want to remind you that fasting doesn't necessarily mean doing it the Muslim way with going from sunup to sundown with no water, not even swallowing your own saliva, no food. Okay, we're not saying that. In fact, we're not saying that you need to go without food all day. Maybe, in fact, we're really just saying we want a day of prayer. Some will choose to fast, some won't. It could be that you'd skip one meal. Maybe you'd eat just bread and fruit that day or skip desserts, or maybe you'd fast from TV or or fast from your phone, horrors. Can you imagine a day without your phone? Whatever it is, the purpose of the fast isn't to pressure God, is it? We're not trying to show him how we're humiliating ourselves so much and we're going through so much pain. If we were, we might as well do like Luther did and take a, take a chain and start beating ourselves. No, we're not trying to pressure God. All we're trying to do is to impress ourselves with how much we value this time. It's to have a clear mind. It's so that whenever we feel those hunger pains or reach for the TV remote and we say, oh, wait a minute, today I'm not doing that, it reminds us, yeah, now I'm praying instead and we can spend a few minutes praying. I want to challenge you to join us in vibrating the kingdom of Satan with our prayers. But there's another purpose. Prayer is what opens our eyes to the possibilities around us that we didn't see before. As we begin to pray over and over and over for a person, or for a block, or for a city, or for a country, God can break down the walls and barriers, or he can open our eyes to see that they're already broken down and we just didn't know it. I want to share with you one more illustration that Lilius Trotter drew from her years of traveling up into the mountains of Algeria. Now, maybe you didn't know that we have snow in the Middle East. We do, we have snow. In fact, I think it was two years ago, we had 21 feet of snow in the mountains in Lebanon. 
There's, we have ski areas in Lebanon. They, they, they go skiing. I, have you been skiing, Chen Min? No, I, I'm too old for that. But some of the others. Brian, have you been? Once. Okay, at least you're not as old as I am. So, uh, But I know we, we keep taking groups up into the mountains to see the snow. And, and we have some snow in Jordan. We have quite a lot of snow in Turkey. Uh, in Algeria, there's quite a bit of snow up in the mountains. And so Lilius Trotter, in her many trips up to the mountains, noticed something that was a powerful illustration to her. She talks about something that most of you are familiar with, a vast expanse of snow, unbroken, no footsteps, nothing. It's just smooth, white snow. And she says that to all appearances, nothing is happening there. It's just frozen and cold. But deep down under the snow, a silent miracle is beginning to take place. All through the summer, all through the nice weather, an unnoticed little green plant was storing up the sun's rays and energy and storing it in its roots. Silently, quietly it worked, no fanfare, nobody noticed it, and then the snow came. And all through the cold winter, it seemed to just be sitting there. Nothing happening. The snow is just covering everything. But unnoticed, under the snow, that little plant begins to send up a stem, a little shoot. And as the stem comes, it melts a cavity in the snow above it. Maybe you didn't know that, but it, it begins to melt a cavity in the snow. And finally, just below the surface of the snow, buds begin to form on it. And only when it bursts through the snow in all its full maturity do we see it. To Lilius, that was just like God's work among the Muslims around her. She said, and I would say it applies to everybody around us that we're working with, our prayers and our work are planting seeds and storing up vital force that will one day suddenly burst forth unexpectedly and in full bloom. We think we've got to build the work. God says, step into the river, plant the seeds, open your eyes, see what I'm doing, and suddenly, unexpectedly, we may see entire families, entire cities, large people groups open to the gospel and accepting Jesus as their savior. When it does, who gets the glory? God does because it doesn't show the, the little work that we did. If we, if we built it up and we preached the sermons and we baptized the millions or hundreds or tens, we could, we could get the credit, couldn't we? But often in these kinds of situations, God waits until it's in full bloom and God gets the glory instead of us. So don't get discouraged if all around you everything seems frozen and cold. Open your eyes. Keep vibrating the kingdom of Satan with your prayers. Open your eyes and watch for the sudden explosion of beauty and color that signals the soon arrival of spring. The snow cannot hold the earth frozen forever. It will melt. Flowers will burst through. We need to open our eyes and see that the harvest around us is ripe, even in Mena. See that there are angels all around us. See people the way God sees them. Open your eyes. Let's pray. Dear Lord, so often our eyes are closed. We think 
that the work you've given us is too hard to do. We think there's nobody interested, that there's nothing we can do. But if we would open our eyes and see that you can use a prostitute to open the hearts of a whole city, that you can use a, a, a jihadi john to open millions of lives throughout that part of the world, Apostle Paul. Lord, open our eyes. Let our hearts be filled with your spirit. Help us to have the courage to do what you need us to do. Help us to vibrate the pillars of Satan's kingdom with our prayers. Whether or not we see the results, let the glory go to someone else. Let the glory go to you as those flowers burst forth in full bloom where we thought nobody was interested. Today we pray that your spirit will fill each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.